Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today, chapters 6 and 7 from H.P. Lovecraft's The Whisperer in Darkness. And now, our story, chapter 6. On Wednesday, I started as agreed, taking with me a valise full of simple necessities and scientific data, including the hideous phonograph record, the Kodak prints, and the entire file of Akeley's correspondence. As requested, I had told no one where I was going, for I could see that the matter demanded utmost privacy, even allowing for its most favorable turns. The thought of actual mental contact with alien, outside entities was stupefying enough to my trained and somewhat prepared mind, and this being so, what might one think of its effect on the vast masses of uninformed laymen? I do not know whether dread or adventurous expectancy was uppermost in me as I changed trains at Boston and began the long westward run out of familiar regions into those I know less thoroughly. Waltham, Concord, Ayer, Fitchburg, Gardner, Athol. My train reached Greenfield seven minutes late, but the northbound connecting express had been held. Transferring in haste, I felt a curious breathlessness as the cars rumbled on through the early afternoon sunlight into territories I had always read of, but had never before visited. I knew I was entering an altogether older-fashioned and more primitive New England than the mechanized, urbanized, coastal and southern areas where all my life had been spent. This was an unspoiled, ancestral New England without the foreigners and factory smoke, billboards and concrete roads, of the sections which modernity has touched. There would be odd survivals of that continuous native life whose deep roots make it the one authentic outgrowth of the landscape. The continuous native life which keeps alive strange, ancient memories and fertilizes the soil for shadowy, marvelous, and seldom-mentioned beliefs. Now and then I saw the blue Connecticut River gleaming in the sun, and after leaving Northfield, we crossed it. Ahead loomed green and cryptical hills, and when the conductor came around, I learned that I was at last in Vermont, he told me to set my watch back an hour, since the northern hill country will have no dealings with newfangled daylight time schemes. As I did so, it seemed to me that I was likewise turning the calendar back a century. The train kept close to the river, 
and across in New Hampshire I could see the approaching slope of, of steep Watastiquet, about which singular old legends cluster. Then streets appeared on my left, and a green island showed in the stream on my right. People rose and filed to the door, and I followed them. The car stopped, and I alighted beneath the long train shed of the Brattleboro Station. Looking over the line of waiting motors, I hesitated a moment to see which one might turn out to be the Akeley Ford, but my identity was divined before I could take the initiative. And yet it was clearly not Akeley himself who advanced to meet me with an outstretched hand and a mellowly phrased query as to whether I was indeed Mr. Albert N. Wilmarth of Arkham. This man bore no resemblance to the bearded, grizzled Akeley of the snapshot, but was a younger and more urbane person, fashionably dressed, and wearing only a small, dark mustache. His cultivated voice held an odd and almost disturbing hint of vague familiarity, though I could not definitely place it in my memory. As I surveyed him, I heard him explaining that he was a friend of my prospective host who had come down from Townsend in his stead. Akeley, he declared, had suffered a sudden attack of some asthmatic trouble, and did not feel equal to making a trip in the outdoor air. It was not serious, however, and there was to be no change in plans regarding my visit. I could not make out just how much this Mr. Noise, as he announced himself, though it seemed to me that his casual manner stamped him as a comparative outsider. Remembering what a hermit Akeley had been, I was a trifle surprised at the ready availability of such a friend, but did not let my puzzlement deter me from entering the motor to which he gestured me. It was not the small ancient car I had expected from Akeley's descriptions, but a large and immaculate specimen of recent pattern, apparently Noise's own, and bearing Massachusetts license plates with the amusing sacred codfish device of that year. My guide, I concluded, must be a summer transit in the Townsend region. Noise climbed into the car beside me and started it at once. I was glad that he did not overflow with conversation, for some particular atmospheric tensity made me feel disinclined to talk. The town seemed very attractive in the afternoon sunlight as we swept up an incline and turned to the right into the main street. It drowsed like the older New England cities which one remembers from boyhood, and something in the collocation of roofs and steeples and chimneys and brick walls formed contours touching deep vile strings of ancestral emotion. I could tell that I was at the gateway of a region half-bewitched through the piling up of unbroken time accumulations, a region where old, strange things have had a chance to grow and linger because they've never been stirred up. As we passed out of Brattleboro, my sense of constraint and foreboding increased, for a vague quality in the hill-crowded countryside with its towering, threatening, close-pressing green and granite slopes hinted at obscure secrets and immemorial survivals, which might or might not be hostile to mankind. For a time our course followed a broad which flowed down from unknown hills in the north, and I shivered when my companion told me it was the West River. It was in this stream, I recalled from newspaper items, that one of the morbid crab-like beans had been seen floating after the floods. Gradually the country around us grew wilder and more deserted. Archaic covered bridges lingered fearsomely out of the past in pockets of the hills, and the half-abandoned railway track paralleling the river seemed to exhale a nebulously visible air of desolation. There were awesome sweeps of vivid valley where great cliffs rose, New England's virgin granite showing gray and austere to the verdure that scaled the crests. There were gorges where untamed streams leaped, bearing down toward the river the unimagined secrets of a thousand pathless peaks. 
branching away now and then were narrow, half-concealed roads that bored their way through solid, luxuriant masses of forest, among whose primal trees whole armies of elemental spirits might well lurk. As I saw these, I thought of how Akeley had been molested by unseen agencies on his drives along this very route, and did not wonder that such things could be. The quaint, sightly village of Newfane, reached in less than an hour, was our last link with that world which man can definitely call his own by virtue of conquest and complete occupancy. After that we cast off all allegiance to immediate, tangible, and time-touched things, and entered a fantastic world of hushed unreality in which the narrow, ribbon-like road rose and fell, and curved with an almost sentient and purposeful caprice amidst the tenantless green peaks and half-deserted valleys. Except for the sound of the motor, and the faint stir of the few lonely farms we passed at infrequent intervals, the only thing that reached my ears was the gurgling, insidious trickle of strange waters from numberless hidden fountains in the shadowy woods. The nearness and intimacy of the dwarfed, domed hills now became veritably breathtaking. Their steepness and abruptness were even greater than I had imagined from hearsay, and suggested nothing in common with the prosaic, objective world we know. The dense, unvisited woods on those inaccessible slopes seemed to harbor alien and incredible things, and I felt that the very outline of the hills themselves held some strange and eon-forgotten meaning, as if they were vast hieroglyphs left by a rumored titan race whose glories live only in rare, deep dreams. All the legends of the past, and all the stupefying imputations of Henry Akeley's letters and exhibits, welled up in my memory to heighten the atmosphere of tension and growing menace. The purpose of my visit, and the frightful abnormalities it postulated, struck at me all at once that nearly overbalanced my ardor for strange delvings. My guide must have noticed my disturbed attitude, for as the road grew wilder and more irregular, and our motions slower and more jolting, his occasional pleasant comments expanded into a steadier flow of discourse. He spoke of the beauty and weirdness of the country, and revealed some acquaintance with the folklore studies of my prospective host. From his polite questions it was obvious that he knew I had come for a scientific purpose, and that I was bringing data of some importance, but he gave no sign of appreciating the depth and awfulness of the knowledge which Akeley had finally reached. His manner was so cheerful, normal, and urbane that his remarks ought to have calmed and reassured me, but oddly enough, I felt only the more disturbed as we bumped and veered onward into the unknown wilderness of hills and woods. At times it seemed as if he were pumping me to see what I knew of the monstrous secrets of the place, and with every fresh utterance that vague, teasing, baffling familiarity in his voice increased. It was not an ordinary or healthy familiarity, despite the thoroughly wholesome and cultivated nature of the voice. I somehow linked it with forgotten nightmares, and felt that I might go mad if I recognized it. If any good excuse had existed, I think I would have turned back from my visit. As it was, I could not well do so, and it occurred to me that a cool, scientific conversation with Akeley himself after my arrival would help greatly to pull me back together. Besides, there was a strangely calming element of cosmic beauty in the hypnotic landscape through which we climbed and plunged fantastically. Time had lost itself in the labyrinths behind, and around us stretched only the flowering waves of fairy and the recaptured loveliness of vanished centuries. The hoary groves, the untainted pastures edged with gay autumnal blossoms, and at vast intervals the small brown farmsteads 
nesting amidst huge trees beneath vertical precipices of fragrant briar and meadow grass. Even the sunlight assumed a supernal glamour, as if some special atmosphere or exhalation mantled the whole region. I'd seen nothing like it before, save in the magic vistas that sometimes formed the backgrounds of Italian primitives. Sodoma and Leonardo conceived such expanses, but only in the distance and through the vaultings of Renaissance arcades. We were now burrowing bodily through the midst of the picture, and I seemed to find in its necromancy a thing I had innately known or inherited and for which I had always been vainly searching. Suddenly, after rounding an obtuse angle at the top of a sharp ascent, the car came to a standstill. On my left, across a well-kept lawn which stretched to the road and flaunted a border of whitewashed stones, rose a white, two-and-a-half-story house of unusual size and elegance for the region, with the congenes of continuous or arcade-linked barns, sheds, and windmill behind, and to the right. I recognized it at once from the snapshot I had received. It was not surprised to see the name of Henry Akeley on the galvanized iron mailbox near the road. For some distance back of the house a level stretch of marshy and sparsely wooded land extended, beyond which soared a steep, thickly forested hillside ending in a jagged leafy crest. This latter, I knew, was the summit of Dark Mountain, halfway up which we must have climbed already. Alighting from the car and taking my valise, Noise asked me to wait while he went in and notified Akeley of my advent. He himself, he added, had important business elsewhere, and could not stop for more than a moment. As he briskly walked up the path to the house, I climbed out of the car myself, wishing to stretch my legs a little before settling down to a sedentary conversation. My feeling of nervousness and tension had risen to a maximum again now that I was on the actual scene of the morbid beleaguering described so hauntingly in Akeley's letters, and I honestly dreaded the coming discussions which were to link me with such alien and forbidden worlds. Close contact with the utterly bizarre is often more terrifying than inspiring, and it did not cheer me to think that this very bit of dusty road was the place where those monstrous tracks and that fetid green ichor had been found after moonless nights of fear and death. I noticed that none of Akeley's dogs seemed to be about. Had he sold them all as soon as the outer ones made peace with him? Try as I might, I could not have the same confidence in the depth and sincerity of that peace which appeared in Akeley's final and queerly different letter. After all, he was a man of much simplicity and with little worldly experience. Was there not, perhaps, some deep and sinister undercurrent beneath the surface of the new alliance? Led by my thoughts, my eyes turned downward to the powdery road surface which had held such hideous testimonies. The last few days had been dry, and tracks of all sorts cluttered the rutted, irregular highway despite the unfrequented nature of the district. With a vague curiosity I began to trace the outline of some of the heterogeneous impressions, trying meanwhile to curb the flights of macabre fancy which the place and its memory suggested. There was something menacing and uncomfortable in the funereal stillness, in the muffled, subtle trickle of distant brooks, and in the crowding green peaks and black-wooded precipices that choked the narrow horizon. And then an image shot into my consciousness which made those vague menaces and flights of fancy seem mild and insignificant indeed. I have said that I was scanning the miscellaneous prints on the road with a kind of idle curiosity, but all at once that curiosity was shockingly snuffed out by a sudden and paralyzing gust of active terror. For though the dust tracks were in general confused and overlapping, and unlikely to arrest any casual gaze, 
"'My restless vision had caught certain details "'near the spot where the path to the house joined the highway, "'and had recognized beyond doubt or hope "'the frightful significance of those details. "'It was not for nothing, alas, "'that I had poured for hours over the Kodak views "'of the outer one's claw prints which Akeley had sent. "'Too well did I know the marks of those loathsome nippers, "'and that hint of ambiguous direction "'which stamped the horrors as no creatures of this planet. "'No chance had been left me for merciful mistake.' Here, indeed, in objective form, before my own eyes, and surely made not many hours ago, were at least three marks which stood out blasphemously among the surprising plethora of blurred footprints leading to and from the Akeley farmhouse. They were the hellish tracks of the living fungi from Hugoth. I pulled myself together in time to stifle a scream. After all, what more was there than I might have expected, assuming that I had really believed Akeley's letters? He had spoken of making peace with the things. Why, then, was it strange that some of them had visited his house? But the terror was stronger than the reassurance. Could any man be expected to look unmoved for the first time upon the claw marks of animate beings from outer depths of space? Just then I saw a noise emerge from the door and approach with a brisk step. I must, I reflected, keep command of myself, for the chances were that this genial friend knew nothing of Akeley's profoundest and most stupendous probings into the forbidden. Akeley, noise hastened to inform me, was glad and ready to see me, although a sudden attack of asthma would prevent him from being a very competent host for a day or two. These spells hit him hard when they came, and were always accompanied by a debilitating fever and general weakness. He never was good for much while they lasted, had the talk in a whisper, and was very clumsy and feeble in getting about. His feet and ankles swelled, too, so that he had to bandage them like a gouty old beef-eater. Today he was in rather bad shape, so that I would have to attend very largely to my own needs, but he was nonetheless eager for conversation. I would find him in the study at the left of the front hall, the room where the blinds were shut. He had to keep the sunlight out when he was ill, for his eyes were very sensitive. As noise bade me adieu and rode off northward in his car, I began to walk slowly toward the house. The door had been left ajar for me, but before approaching and entering I cast a searching glance around the whole place, trying to decide what had struck me as so intangibly queer about it. The barns and sheds looked trimly prosaic enough, and I noticed Akeley's battered ford in its capacious, unguarded shelter. Then the secret of the queerness reached me. It was the total silence. Ordinarily a farm is at least moderately murmurous from its various kinds of livestock, "'but here all signs of life were missing. "'What of the hens and the dogs? "'The cows, of which Akeley had said he possessed several, "'might conceivably be out to pasture, "'and the dogs might possibly have been sold, "'but the absence of any trace of cackling or grunting "'was truly singular. "'I did not pause long on the path, "'but resolutely entered the open house door "'and closed it behind me. "'It had cost me a distinct psychological effort to do so, and now that I was shut inside, I had a momentary longing for precipitate retreat. Not that the place was in the least sinister in visual suggestion. On the contrary, I thought the graceful late colonial hallway very tasteful and wholesome, and admired the evident breeding of the man who had furnished it. What made me wish to flee was something very attenuated and indefinable. Perhaps it was a certain odd odor which I thought I noticed, though I well knew how common musty odors are even in the best of ancient farmhouses. We'll return with Chapter 7 right after these sponsor messages. 
Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, Chapter 7 of The Whisperer in Darkness by H.P. Lovecraft. Refusing to let these cloudy qualms overmaster me, I recalled Noise's instructions and pushed open the six-paneled, brass-latched white door on my left. The room beyond was darkened as I had known before, and as I entered it, I noticed that the queer odor was stronger there. There likewise appeared to be some faint, half-imaginary rhythm or vibration in the air. For a moment the closed blinds allowed me to see very little, but then a kind of apologetic hacking or whispering sound drew my attention to a great easy chair in the farther, darker corner of the room. Within its shadowy depths I saw the white blur of a man's face and hands, and then a moment I had crossed to greet the figure who tried to speak. Dim though the light was, I perceived that this was indeed my host. I had studied the Kodak picture repeatedly, and there could be no mistake about this firm, weather-beaten face with the cropped, "'Grizzled beard. "'But as I looked again "'my recognition was mixed with sadness and anxiety, "'for certainly his face was that of a very sick man. "'I felt that there must be something more than asthma "'behind that strained, rigid, immobile expression "'and unwinking glassy stare, "'and realized how terribly the strain "'of his frightful experiences must have told on him. "'Was it not enough to break any human being? "'Even a younger man than this intrepid delver "'into the forbidden.' The strange and sudden relief, I feared, had come too late to save him from something like a general breakdown. There was a touch of the pitiful in the limp, lifeless way his lean hands rested in his lap. He had on a loose dressing gown, and was swathed around the head and high around the neck with a vivid yellow scarf or hood. And then I saw that he was trying to talk in the same hacking whisper with which he had greeted me. It was a hard whisper to catch at first, since the gray mustache concealed all movements of the lips and something in its timber disturbed me greatly. But by concentrating my attention, I could soon make out its purport surprisingly well. The accent was by no means a rustic one, and the language was even more polished than correspondence had led me to expect. "'Mr. Wilmarth, I presume? You must pardon my not rising. I'm quite ill, 
as Mr. Noyes must have told you. "'But I could not resist having you come just the same. "'You know what I wrote in my last letter. "'There is so much to tell you tomorrow when I shall feel better. "'I can't say how glad I am to see you in person after all our many letters. "'You have the file with you, of course, "'and the Kodak prints and records. "'Noise put your valise in the hall.' I suppose you saw it. For tonight, I fear you'll have to wait on yourself to a great extent. Your room is upstairs. This one, the one over this. And you'll see the bathroom door open at the head of the staircase. There's a meal spread for you in the dining room, right through this door at your right, which you can take whenever you feel like. I'll be a better host tomorrow. But just now, weakness leaves me helpless. Make yourself at home. "'You might take out the letters and pictures and records "'and put them on the table here "'before you go upstairs with your bag. "'It is here that we shall discuss them. "'You can see my phonograph on that corner stand.' "'I asked him if there was anything I could do. "'He answered, "'No, thanks. "'There's nothing you can do for me. "'I know these spells of old. "'Just come back for a little quiet visiting before night, "'and then go to bed when you please. "'I'll rest right here.' "'Perhaps sleep here all night as I often do. "'In the morning I'll be far better able to go into the things we must go into. "'You realize, of course, the utterly stupendous nature of the matter before us. "'To us, as to only a few men on this earth, "'there will be opened up gulfs of time and space and knowledge "'beyond anything within the conception of human science or philosophy. "'Do you know that Einstein is wrong, "'and that certain objects and forces can move with a velocity greater than that of light?' With proper aid, I expect to go backward and forward in time, and actually see and feel the earth of remote past. You can't imagine the degree to which those beings have carried science. There's nothing they can't do with the mind and body of living organisms. I expect to visit other planets, and even other stars and galaxies. The first trip will be to Yugoth, the nearest world fully peopled by the beings. It is a strange, dark orb at the very rim of our solar system, unknown to earthly astronomers as yet. But I must have written you about that. At the proper time, you know, the beings there will direct thought currents toward us and cause it to be discovered, or perhaps let one of their human allies give the scientists a hint. There are mighty cities on Yugoth, great tiers of terraced towers built of black stone like the specimen I tried to send you. That came from Yugoth. The sun shines there no brighter than a star, but the beings need no light. They have other, subtler senses that put no windows in their great houses and temples. Light even hurts and hampers and confuses them, for it does not exist at all in the black cosmos outside time and space where they came from originally. To visit Yugoth would drive any weak man mad, yet I'm going there. "'the black rivers of pitch that flow under those mysterious Cyclopean bridges. "'Things built by some elder race extinct and forgotten "'before the beings came to Yugoth from the ultimate voids. "'Ought to be enough to make any man a Dante or Poe "'if he can keep sane long enough to tell what he's seen. "'But remember, that dark world of fungoid gardens and windowless cities isn't really terrible. "'It is only to us that it would seem so.' Probably this world seemed just as terrible to the beings when they first explored it in the primal age. 
"'You know they were here long before the fabulous epic of Cthulhu was over. "'And remember all about sunken Rie when it was above the waters. "'They've been inside the earth, too. "'There are openings which human beings know nothing of, "'some of them in these very Vermont hills, "'and great worlds of unknown life down there, "'blue litten Creon, red litten Yoth, "'and black lightless Nikai. "'It's from Nikai that frightful Satugwa came.' and the Camorian myth cycle preserved by the Atlantean high priest Clarkistan. But we will talk about this later on. It must be four or five o'clock by this time. Better bring the stuff from your bag, take a bite, and come back for a comfortable chat. Very slowly I turned and began to obey my host, fetching my valise, extracting and depositing the desired articles, and finally ascending to the room designated as mine. With the memory of that roadside claw print fresh in my mind, Akeley's whispered paragraphs had affected me queerly, and the hints of familiarity with this unknown world of fungus life, forbidden Ugoth, made my flesh creep more than I cared to own. I was tremendously sorry about Akeley's illness, but had to confess that his hoarse whisper had a hateful as well as pitiful quality. If only he wouldn't gloat so about Ugoth and its black secrets. My room proved a very pleasant and well-furnished one, devoid alike of the musty odor and disturbing sense of vibration. And after leaving my valise there, I descended again to greet Akeley and take the lunch he had set out for me. The dining room was just beyond the study, and I saw that a kitchen, L, extended still further in the same direction. On the dining table, an ample array of sandwiches, cake, and cheese awaited me, and a thermos bottle beside a cup and saucer testified that hot coffee had not been forgotten. After a well-relished meal, I poured myself a liberal cup of coffee, but found that the culinary standard had suffered a lapse in this one detail. My first spoonful revealed a fairly great chair in the darkened next room. Once I went in to beg him to share the repast, but he whispered that he could eat nothing as yet. Later on, just before he slept, he would take some malted milk. All he should have that day. After lunch, I insisted on clearing the dishes away and washing them in the kitchen sink, incidentally emptying the coffee which I had not been able to appreciate. Then, returning to the darkened study, I drew up a chair near my host's corner and prepared for such conversation as he might feel inclined to conduct. The letters, pictures, and record were still on the large center table, but for the nonce we did not have to draw upon them. Before long I forgot even the bizarre odor and curious suggestions of vibration. I have said that there were things in some of Ickley's letters, especially the second and most voluminous one, which I would not dare to quote or even form into words on paper. This hesitancy applies with still greater force to the things I heard whispered that evening in the darkened room among the lonely hills. Of the extent of the cosmic horrors unfolded by that raucous voice, I cannot even hint. He had known hideous things before— but what he learned since making his pact with the outside things was almost too much for sanity to bear. Even now I absolutely refuse to believe what he implied about the constitution of ultimate infinity, the juxtaposition of dimensions, and the frightful position of our known cosmos of space and time in the unending chain of linked cosmos atoms which makes up the immediate supercosmos of curves, angles, and material and semi-material electronic organization. Never was a sane man more dangerously close to the arcana of basic entity. Never was an organic brain nearer to utter annihilation in the chaos that transcends form and force and symmetry. I learned whence Cthulhu first came, 
"'and why half the great temporary stars of history had flared forth. "'I guessed, from hints which made even my informant pause timidly, "'the secret behind the Magellanic clouds and globular nebulae, "'and the black truth veiled by the immemorial allegory of Tau. "'The nature of the deus was plainly revealed, "'and I was told the essence, though not the source, "'of the hounds of Tindalos. "'The legend of Yig, father of serpents, "'remained figurative no longer.' and I started with loathing when told of the monstrous nuclear chaos beyond angled space which the Necromicon had mercifully cloaked under the name of Azathoth. It was shocking to have the foulest nightmares of secret myth cleared up in concrete terms whose stark, morbid hatefulness exceeded the boldest hints of ancient and medieval mystics. Ineluctably, I was led to believe that the first whisperers of these accursed tales must have had discourse with Akeley's outer ones and perhaps have visited outer cosmic realms, as Akeley now proposed visiting them. I was told of the black stone and what it implied, and was glad that it had not reached me. My guesses about those hieroglyphics had been all too correct. And yet Akeley now seemed reconciled to the whole fiendish system he had stumbled upon, reconciled, and eager to probe further into the monstrous abyss. I wondered what beings he had talked with since his last letter to me, and whether many of them had been as human as that first emissary he had mentioned. The tension in my head grew insufferable, and I built up all sorts of wild theories about that queer, persistent odor and those insidious hints of vibration in the darkened room. Night was falling now, and as I recalled what Akeley had written me about those earlier nights, I shuddered to think there would be no moon. Nor did I like the way the farmhouse nestled in the lee of that colossal forested slope leading up to Dark Mountain's unvisited crest. With Akeley's permission, I lighted a small oil lamp, turned it low, and set it on a distant bookcase beside the ghostly bust of Milton. But afterward I was sorry I had done so, for it made my host's strained, immobile face and listless hands look damnably abnormal and corpse-like. He seemed half incapable of motion, though I saw him nod stiffly once in a while. After what he had told, I could scarcely imagine what profounder secrets he was saving for the morrow— but at last it developed that his trip to Ugoth and beyond, and my own possible participation in it, was to be the next day's topic. He must have been amused by the start of horror I gave at hearing a cosmic voyage on my part proposed, for his head wobbled violently when I showed my fear. Subsequently, he spoke very gently of how human beings might accomplish, and several times had accomplished, the seemingly impossible flight across the interstellar void. It seemed that complete human bodies did not indeed to make the trip, but that the prodigious surgical, biological, chemical, and mechanical skill of the outer ones had found a way to convey human brains without their concomitant physical structure. There was a harmless way to extract a brain, and a way to keep the organic residue alive during its absence. The bare, compact cerebral matter was then immersed in an occasionally replenished fluid with an ether-tight cylinder of a metal mined in Ugoth, certain electrodes reaching through and connecting at will with elaborate instruments capable of duplicating the three vital faculties of sight, hearing, and speech. For the winged fungus beings to carry the brain cylinders intact through space was an easy matter. Then on every planet covered by their civilization, they would find plenty of adjustable faculty instruments capable of being connected with the encased brains, so that after a little fitting, these traveling intelligences could be given a full sensory and articulate life albeit a bodiless and mechanical one, at each stage of their journeying through and beyond the space-time continuum. 
It was as simple as carrying a phonograph record about and playing it whenever a phonograph of corresponding make exists. Of its success there could be no question. Akeley was not afraid. Had it not been brilliantly accomplished again and again, he said. For the first time one of the inert, wasted hands raised itself and pointed stiffly to a high shelf on the farther side of the room. There, in a neat row, stood more than a dozen cylinders of a metal I'd never seen before. "'cylinders about a foot high and somewhat less in diameter, "'with three curious sockets set in an isosceles triangle "'over the front convex surface of each. "'One of them was linked to two of the sockets "'to a pair of singular-looking machines that stood in the background. "'Of their purport I did not need to be told, "'and I shivered as with egg. "'Then I saw the hand point to a much nearer corner "'where some intricate instruments with attached cords and plugs, "'several of them much like the two devices on the shelf behind the cylinders, "'were huddled together.' "'There are four kinds of instruments here, Wilmarth,' whispered the voice. Four kinds. Three faculties each. Makes twelve pieces in all. "'You see, there are four different sorts of beings represented in those cylinders up there. Three humans. Six fungoid beings who can't navigate space corporeally. Two beings from Neptune. God, if you could see the body this type has on its own planet and the rest entities from the central caverns of an especially interesting dark star beyond the galaxy. In the principal outpost inside Round Hill, you'll now and then find more cylinders and machines, cylinders of extra-cosmic brains with different senses from any we know, allies and explorers from the uttermost outside, and special machines for giving them impressions and expression in the several ways suited at once to them and to the comprehensions of different types of listeners. Round Hill, like most of the being's main outposts all through the various universes, is a very cosmopolitan place. Of course, only the more common types have been lent to me for experiment. Here, take the three machines I point to and set them on the table. That tall one with the two glass lenses in front. "'then the box with the vacuum tubes and sounding board. "'And now the one with the metal disc on top. "'Now for the cylinder with the label B67 pasted on it. "'Just stand in that Windsor chair to reach the shelf. "'Heavy? Never mind. "'Be sure of the number B67. "'Don't bother that fresh, shiny cylinder joined to the two testing instruments, "'the one with my name on it. Set B-67 on the table near where you put the machines and see that the dial switch on all three machines is jammed over to the extreme left. Now connect the cord of the lens machine with the upper socket on the cylinder. Yeah, there. Join the tube machine to the lower left-hand socket and the disc apparatus to the outer socket. Now, move all the dial switches on the machine over to the extreme right. First the lens one, then the disc one, then the tube one. That's right. I might as well tell you that this is a human being, just like us. I'll give you a taste of some of the others tomorrow. To this day, I do not know why I obeyed these whispers so slavishly, or whether I thought Akeley was mad or sane. After what had gone before, I ought to have been prepared for anything— but this mechanical mummery seemed so like the typical vagaries of crazed inventors and scientists 
that had struck a chord of doubt which even the preceding discourse had not excited. What the whisperer implied was beyond all human belief. Yet were not the other things still farther beyond, and less preposterous only because of their remoteness from tangible concrete proof? As my mind reeled amidst this chaos, I became conscious of a mixed grating and whirring from all three of the machines lately linked to the cylinder, a grating and whirring which soon subsided into a virtual noiselessness. What was about to happen? Was it, would I hear a voice? And if so, what proof would I have that it was not some cleverly concocted radio device talked into by a concealed but closely watched speaker? Even now I am unwilling to swear just what I heard, or just what phenomenon really took place before me. "'but something certainly seemed to take place. "'To be brief and plain, "'the machine with the tubes and sound-box began to speak, "'and with a point and intelligence "'which left no doubt that the speaker was actually present "'and watching us. "'The voice was loud, metallic, lifeless, "'and plainly mechanical in every detail of its production. "'It was incapable of inflection or expressiveness, "'but scraped and rattled down with a deadly precision and deliberation. "'Mr. Wilmar. I hope I do not startle you. I am a human being like yourself, though my body is now resting safely under proper vitalizing treatment inside Round Hill, about a mile and a half east of here. I myself am here with you. My brain is in that cylinder, and I see, hear, and speak to these electronic vibrators. In a week I am going across the void, as I have been many times before and I expect to have the pleasure of Mr. Akeley's company. I wish I might have yours as well, for I know you by sight and reputation, and have kept close track of your correspondence with our friend. I am, of course, one of the men who have become allied with the outside beings visiting our planet. I met them first in the Himalayas, and have helped them in various ways. In return, they have given me experiences such as few men, have ever had. Do you realize what it means when I say I have been on 37 different celestial bodies, planets, dark stars, and less definable objects, including eight outside our galaxy and two outside the curved cosmos of space and time? All this has not harmed me in the least. My brain has been removed from my body by fissions so adroit that it would be crude to call the operation surgery. The visiting beings have methods which make these extractions easy and almost normal, and one's body never ages when the brain is out of it. The brain, I may add, is virtually immortal with its mechanical faculties and a limited nourishment supplied by occasional changes of the preserving fluid. Altogether, I hope most heartily that you will decide to come with Mr. Akeley and me. The visitors are eager to know men of knowledge like yourself, and to show them the great abysses that most of us have had to dream about in fanciful ignorance. It may seem strange at first to meet them, but I know you will be above minding that. I think Mr. Noyes will go along too, the man who doubtless brought you up here in his car. He has been one of us for years. I suppose you recognized his voice as one of those on the record Mr. Akeley sent you. At my violent start, the speaker paused a moment before concluding. So, Mr. Wilmarth, I will leave the matter to you, merely adding that a man with your love of strangeness and folklore ought never to miss such a chance as this. There is nothing to fear. 
All transitions are painless, and there is much to enjoy in a wholly mechanized state of sensation. When the electrodes are disconnected, one merely drops off into a sleep of especially vivid and fantastic dreams. And now, if you don't mind, we might adjourn our session till tomorrow. Good night. Just turn all the switches back to the left. Never mind the exact order, though you might let the lens machine be last. Good night, Mr. Akeley. Treat our guest well. Ready now, with those switches? That was all. I obeyed mechanically and shut off all three switches, though dazed with doubt of everything that had occurred. My head was still reeling as I heard Akeley's whispering voice telling me that I might leave all apparatus on the table just as it was. He did not essay any comment on what had happened, and indeed no comment could have conveyed much to my burdened faculties. I heard him telling me I could take the lamp to use in my room, and deduced that he wished to rest alone in the dark. It was surely time he rested, for his discourse of the afternoon and evening had been such as to exhaust even a vigorous man. Still dazed, I bade my host good night and went upstairs with the lamp, although I had an excellent pocket flashlight with me. I was glad to be out of that downstairs study with the queer odor and vague suggestions of vibration, yet could not, of course, escape a hideous sense of dread and peril and cosmic abnormality as I thought of the place I was in and the forces I was meeting. The wild, lonely region, the black, mysteriously forested slope towering so close behind the house, the footprint in the road, the sick, motionless whisperer in the dark, the hellish cylinders and machines, and above all the invitations to strange surgery and stranger voyagings, these things, all so new and in such sudden succession, rushed in on me with a cumulative force which sapped my will and almost undermined my physical strength. To discover that my guide Noise was the human celebrant to that monstrous bygone Sabbath ritual on the phonograph record was a particular shock though I had previously sensed a dim, repellent familiarity in his voice. Another special shock came from my own attitude toward my host whenever I paused to analyze it. For as much as I had instinctively liked Akeley as revealed in his correspondence, I now found that he filled me with a distinct repulsion. His illness ought to have excited my pity, but instead it gave me a kind of shudder. He was so rigid and inert and corpse-like, and that incessant whispering was so hateful and unhuman. It occurred to me that his whispering was different from anything else of the kind I'd ever heard, that, despite the curious motionless of the speaker's mustache-screened lips, it had a latent strength and carrying power remarkable for the wheezing of an asthmatic. I had been able to understand the speaker when wholly across the room, and once or twice it had seemed to me that the faint but penetrant sounds represented not so much weakness as deliberate repression, for what reason I could not guess. From the first I had felt the disturbing quality in their timber. Now, when I tried to weigh the matter, I thought I could trace this impression to a kind of subconscious familiarity like that which had made Noise's voice so hazily ominous, but when or where I had encountered the thing it hinted at was more than I could tell. One thing was certain. I would not spend another night here. My scientific zeal had vanished amidst fear and loathing and I felt nothing now but a wish to escape from this net of morbidity and unnatural revelation. I knew enough now. It must indeed be true that strange cosmic linkages do exist, but such things are surely not meant for normal human beings to meddle with. 
"'Blasphemous influences seemed to surround me "'and press chokingly upon my senses. "'Sleep, I decided, would be out of the question, "'so I merely extinguished the lamp "'and threw myself on the bed fully dressed. "'No doubt it was absurd, "'but I kept ready for some unknown emergency, "'gripping in my right hand the revolver I'd brought along "'and holding the pocket flashlight in my left. "'Not a sound came from below, "'and I can imagine how my host was sitting there "'with cadaverous stiffness in the dark.' Somewhere I heard a clock ticking, and was vaguely grateful for the normality of the sound. It reminded me, though, of another thing about the region which disturbed me, the total absence of animal life. There were certainly no farm beasts about, and now I realized that even the accustomed night noises of wild living things were absent. Except for the sinister trickle of distant unseen waters, that stillness was anomalous. Interplanetary and I wondered what star-spawned, intangible blight could be hanging over the region. I recalled from old legends that dogs and other beasts had always hated the outer ones, and thought of what those tracks in the road just might mean. Join us next week Sunday night for Chapter 8 and the exciting conclusion of The Whisperer in Darkness by H.P. Lovecraft. This is your host, John Hagedorn. If you have a chance... Apple listeners, please do send us a review for 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. Stay safe, everyone, and we'll be back soon. tax return hopefully it ends up in your hands fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30 percent in 2023 if you're in a bind this tax season lifelock can help our u.s-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues and all lifelock plans are backed by the million dollar protection package so we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft help protect your information this tax season with lifelock save up to 25 percent your first year at lifelock.com aware